You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, we'll be looking at a few verses in this chapter and in the following chapter. It was the verses that were read earlier uh, during our scripture reading. Well, throughout scripture, God calls his people to be a people who remember. Israel was often called to remember the exodus, the saving work of God to deliver them from slavery in Egypt to freedom. They were to remember the Sabbath day, and to keep it holy. They were to remember the wisdom of the scriptures, as the book of Proverbs often tells us, do not forget my words, but bind them around your neck and write them on the tablets of your heart. And now in the New Testament, we as the church are called also to remember. We are called to remember that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We are called to remember one another, giving thanks to God for our work of faith, our labor of love, and our steadfastness of hope. And when we gather, we are to take the bread and the cup in communion, and we are to do this in remembrance of Christ. God's people are to be a people who remember. We are to be a people who are firmly rooted in history, because it is what God has done in the past that defines who we are in the present and determines who we will be in the future. We must remember, and we must remember to remember, because it is often easy to forget to remember, especially in times like this, when we are in the middle of a global crisis, a pandemic, and we're tempted to focus exclusively on what is coming next. But when are schools reopening? When will churches be able to gather again? When will we receive the vaccine? When will we be able to see our family and friends? And those are all important questions. We're not called to ignore what's going on in the world or bury our heads in the sand. We are to ask those questions, but we can't fix our attention on those kinds of questions. We must remember. We must remember the wondrous works of God that he has done in the past. And that is what we are going to do today as we celebrate one year, one year since our church first moved into this building. It's a little ironic that we are celebrating this gift of the building at a time when most of us can't be here. Uh, uh, But I didn't want to lose this occasion of celebrating our first anniversary here. The prophet Jeremiah is going to help us to do that, to look back and to remember all that God has done over the past year. And as he does that, as he acts as our guide in scripture, he will also help us to look back at the work of Christ and to look forward to our glorious future. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Um, That's not because the pages of our Bibles are soaked with his tears, but because Actually, in this book, he has written about his emotional response to what he was writing to his people. He was a weeping prophet, and he wasn't ashamed to talk about it. 
And the reason why he was a weeping prophet is because he wrote primarily about judgment. He wrote about the judgment on the nations. He wrote about judgment on the nation of Israel. And he wrote about judgment on his own people, the people of Judah. Specifically, he prophesied that God would bring destruction upon Jerusalem and upon the temple because of the unrepentant idolatry of Judah. But in the midst of all these prophecies of judgment lies this oasis of hope that centers on these two chapters, on Jeremiah chapter 30 and Jeremiah chapter 31. Like the golden rays of light piercing through the dark sky, Jeremiah writes of a time when God will no longer judge his people, but save them. He will no no longer scatter his people, but gather them both to, to each other and to himself. He will no longer set his hand against them by sending pestilence and famine and war, but set his hand upon them in blessing and prosperity. These prophecies, if you know your Old Testament history, find their partial fulfillment in the work of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra restored God's people to God's law, and Nehemiah restored God's people to God's land. But as we will see, these prophecies were not completely fulfilled during their lifetimes, during their ministry, during their work. They would not be completely fulfilled until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what these verses are about. They're ultimately about the work of Christ to not just restore God's people to God's law, but to write God's law on our hearts. Not just to bring us to a physical city called Jerusalem, but to bring us to a spiritual city, the city of God, the spiritual city in heaven that cannot be shaken and in which we will live forever. And so as we apply these verses to our church and to what we have seen God do in giving us this building last year, we need to be careful not to read too much in these verses or over-apply these verses to our situation because they're not ultimately about us. But at the same time, I believe that we can still hear echoes of God's redemptive work in these verses in what God has done over the past year here at Sovereign Grace. So I'm going to begin by walking through the text. We're just going to work our way through the text. What does it say? What does it mean? And then we will go on to some more personal reflections on our one-year building anniversary. Now these verses, uh, starting in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 18, uh, well actually beginning before that, but this is just the the cross-section that we're taking from this oasis that Jeremiah is writing in the middle of his book. Uh, He is writing these verses when Judah is already in exile. We know that because in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1, He says that he's writing this to the surviving elders of the exiles and all the people taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now you may be thinking, Jeremiah 29, that sounds familiar. Uh, Perhaps you've come across that before. One of the more famous verses in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, which says, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Perhaps you encountered that verse uh, on your graduation. 
in a card that someone wrote for you and it's, it's meant to, to help you to look forward to the future with anticipation rather than despair, knowing that God has good plans for you. Plans not for evil, but for a future to give you hope. And that is wonderfully, gloriously true. But if we are to understand that verse in its proper context, we actually must not forget the verse that comes immediately before it, Jeremiah 29, verse 10, which says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 70 years of captivity before they would know the blessing of verse 11. 70 years before they would prosper and return to the promised land. We need to remember that every time we are tempted to use Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11 to say that God only prophesies blessing and prosperity in our future. Because sometimes God's people need to wait for those blessings. In fact, sometimes they need to wait years. Sometimes they need to wait decades. The people who heard that prophecy would actually not experience and see those blessings. In 70 years, their generation would have died off. It was their children's generation that would experience the blessing, the future, the hope that God promises. Sometimes God's blessings do not come the way that we would expect in our lifetime. And we need to wait for them. But God's plans are still good. His promises are still true. And so it is in the midst of these 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah is writing these verses. You need to picture what his homeland, his home city looked like as he was writing these words of hope. Their city lies in ruins. Their temple has been destroyed. Their young people have been massacred. Their king has had his eyes gouged out and his sons slaughtered before him. And the vast majority of the people of Judah live in captivity under the cruel reign of a foreign tyrant. But in verse 18, Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. That is a remarkable promise given the historical context that Jeremiah was living in and the context that his readers were living in. It was remarkable not only for for what it covers but who it covers. The what is the city The city of of God, Zion, Jerusalem, it would be rebuilt on its mound. God's people would not have to start afresh in a different land, in a different place, rebuild uh, or build up a city from scratch. They would rebuild the city of God. They won't have to find a new city elsewhere. Jerusalem would arise from its ashes. The who is all of God's people. You notice the progression of God's blessing, it starts with the tents of Jacob, and then it escalates to the dwellings, then the city, then culminates in the palace. In other words, the Lord is making promises to the rich and to the poor. 
He will restore the fortunes not only of those who live in palaces, but those who dwell in tents to the kings and to the shepherds. And so this, this reminds us that when the Lord moves, when he, he issues forth his promise towards his people, he does not just have the rich, the powerful, the influential in mind. He has all his people in mind, whether rich or poor, whether powerful or weak, whether dwelling in comfort or, or nomadically moving around in tents. His steadfast love and faithfulness is on all his people because all of them are precious in his sight. Verse 19 tells us that God will not only give them a place to live, but a reason to rejoice. Verse 19, it says, out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving in the voices of those who celebrate. The, the sound of mourning and crying and grieving the, the empty streets of Jerusalem would once again resound with the happy songs of God's people as they shout out with joy. And that is no surprise because verse 20 says that God will multiply them. God will cause them to be fruitful and to multiply, to have children again. And those, those children, verse 20 says, their children shall be as they were of old, not starving in the streets, not sick with disease, not wandering the streets aimlessly as orphans because their parents were killed in war. But they would be safe. They would be healthy. They would thrive. Verse 20 says also that their congregation shall be established before me. The Lord is going to restore the public worship of his people. And his people will once again congregate. They will gather. They will come together to hear God's law and to seek God's will. And anyone who dares to oppress them, verse 20 says, I will punish all who oppress them. Jeremiah mentions this commitment from the Lord to his people to exercise divine justice against his enemies. Again, we see it in verses 23 and 24. Behold, the storm of the Lord Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the attentions of his mind. If you read through the early chapters of Jeremiah, what you'll notice is that when Jeremiah writes about God's wrath and God's justice, it is directed against his own people. Wrath and justice, and punishment because of their unrepentant idolatry. But Jeremiah writes of this time when that divine wrath will, will turn away from his people and instead be redirected to those who oppress them, those who wrong them. Now verse 21 brings the promise of a king. It says, their prince shall be one of themselves, it will no longer be a foreign king, a cruel tyrant from a foreign place. It would be one of their own. Their ruler would not come from a faraway land, but shall come out from their own midst. They would once again be their own people with their own sovereign king. And unlike all the kings who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and worshiped idols and, and led the way, in unrepentant sin, this king would walk with the Lord. 
Verse 21 says, I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. But what is the answer to that question? Who would dare of himself to approach me? Well, the answer is no one. No one would dare to approach God of himself because God is a holy God and he does not dwell in the presence of sin. And the only way that a man or a woman could approach the presence of God is if they approached through sacrifice, through the atoning blood of a sacrifice. The only way that they could approach God was on the basis of his own terms, not their own. And what the Old Testament teaches us is that no one could approach God except the priests. Once they had atoned for their own sins and in order to atone for the sins of God's people. And that only at prescribed times. If someone approached God on their own terms without offering up the appropriate sacrifices, they would die. Instant punishment. But this prince would be welcomed into God's presence. He would not only represent God to God's people as the king, but he would represent God's people to God as their priest. He would be a priest king by God's gracious, undeserved invitation. Again, if you know the story of Israel and Judah, you know that there was no king who reigned over Judah following the Babylonian captivity. King Zedekiah, whom Jeremiah is writing to, the one whose eyes were plucked out and whose sons were slaughtered in front of him. He was the last king of Judah. There would be no king on David's throne until the son of David himself, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He was the prince who was one of their own, born as a Jew under the law. He was the ruler who came out of their midst, who was born in the city of David, Bethlehem. He was the one whom the father drew to himself because he was his eternally beloved son. My friends, this this is a messianic prophecy. And Jesus is the priest king foretold in these verses. The one who would not only reign over us as our king, but intercede for us as our priest. He would enter the place where no one else dared to approach. The holy of holies. And because of his intercessory work, because of his blood sacrifice as he offered himself, he would not only bring himself into the presence of God, but bring all who are united to him by faith into the presence of God as well. The scriptures tell us that we can boldly approach the throne of God. The question is, who would dare of himself to approach me? Well, the answer has become, because of the work of Christ, all who are in Christ, all who are united to Christ by faith, all who can enter the holy of holies because of his blood, his merit, his sacrifice, all can approach with boldness. Because the death of Christ on the cross has satisfied God's wrath against us. It has redirected his wrath upon his son. 
who has satisfied the wrath of God completely so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sinful man can approach a holy God because our Savior sacrificed himself. It is this sacrifice that makes verse 22 possible. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. That is, that is the ultimate end of all the redemptive work of Christ. It is to make this promise possible. You shall be my people and I will be your God. If you know these verses, you know that at the end of Jeremiah chapter 31, as Jeremiah is bringing this oasis of hope, this wonderful promise of a glorious future to a close, he writes this in chapter 31, verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In his commentary on the book of Jeremiah, Philip Ryken writes this, this is God's promise of the covenant. It contains everything you have ever longed for and everything you could ever hope for. God will be your God and you will belong to him. Everything you could ever need or desire in the whole universe is wrapped up in this one promise. My friends, there's no better news for unworthy broken sinners like us. That God would be our God. Not just the God of the heavens and the earth. Not just the God of of past, present, and future. Not just the God of justice and righteousness. The God of us. Our God. And we would not just be the people of Bradford, not just the people of Canada, not just the people of the 21st century. We would be God's people. This is the promise for the Christian that God will not cast us away. God will not punish us in his justice. God will not forsake us even when we forsake him, but will, he will welcome us as his covenant people, both now and forevermore. This is true for anyone for anyone who would repent and believe in Christ. God will forgive you of your sins. God will welcome you into his presence. God will bring you to his heavenly home if you would but turn away from your sins and turn and look to Christ. Look to Christ as your savior. Look to Christ as your Lord. That he would pour out his grace upon you. He is the only way that any one of us no matter how good you think you are or how sinful you think you are, he is the only way that any one of us can draw near to God. You cannot approach God on the basis of your own merit. You must approach God on the basis of Christ's merit. And so come, look look to Christ, look to the Savior and be brought into the presence, the loving, faithful, everlasting presence of God. Jeremiah repeats this new covenant promise in chapter 31, verse one, but with a slight nuance. He says, at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. You see that formula again. I will be their God, they shall be my people. But here he says, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel. This is, the, this is an emphasis on not only the new covenant, but new covenant unity. 
that the 12 tribes of Israel would be one people of God. All of their bad blood, all of their territorial disputes, all of their soured history would be erased and they would be united as one people under one God. Now, Jeremiah concludes this section of his prophecy by turning their minds to the past. Verse two, he says, thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. In this verse, Jeremiah reminds them of God's grace in the wilderness, which they wandered after the exodus. That, by the way, was another time when they didn't have a home. That was another time when the generation knew what it was like to live in captivity as slaves under a foreign ruler. And Jeremiah reminds them that even there, as they wandered the wilderness, they found grace. They found the grace of God. God's grace was with them then. And if it was with them then, how much more shall it be with them now? There is grace to be found in the wilderness. And why is that? Because because of verse three, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. My friends, the Lord is telling us why. Why he would be so committed to a sinful, unrepentant people. A people who kept going up onto every high hill and committing spiritual adultery with any idol they could come across? Why was God continuing to pour out his grace and issue his promises? It's because he has loved them with an everlasting love. A love without end. A love that stretches on for eternity. An everlasting love that has no end because it has no beginning. He chose them before the foundation of the world. And that is why God continues to be faithful to his stubborn, sinful people. That is why God continues to keep his promises. He has set his everlasting love upon his people to prosper them, to bless them, and to bring them back to one another and to himself, no matter how much they've sinned or how far they have strayed. And so, in this climax of this prophecy, at least this section of the prophecy, Jeremiah writes in verses four to six, again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planter shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit for there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. My friends, what do watchmen do? Watchmen watch for enemies. But what are these watchmen doing? They're calling to one another, not, not sounding the alarm that an enemy is approaching, but calling one another to worship. They are leaving their watchtowers behind and going up to Zion to worship the Lord their God. My friends, there is coming a day when the watchmen can leave their posts because there will be no more enemies to watch out for. 
pastors no longer have to pay close attention to themselves and to all the flock. We don't have to watch ourselves so that we would not fall into temptation. We don't need to exhort one another that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Instead, all of us will call each other to worship, to go up to Zion, to worship our God, our Lord, our Savior, without end and without danger, because all of our enemies will be defeated. Sin, Satan, and death will finally be cast out of our heavenly, eternal home. And we will worship. We will fill the streets of Zion with a shout of worship, with a cry of joy. And we will do that forever. This is what is coming for those who are in Christ. Now, what does a text like this have to say to us today? More specifically, what does it have to say to us as we celebrate our one-year building anniversary? Well, in some ways, the, the parallels between what Jeremiah is writing here and what we have experienced over the past year, they're striking. This building was like an abandoned city, but now it is being spiritually rebuilt. This sanctuary was silent, And now it resounds with the sound of God's praises. Most of God's people were scattered from this place. But now they are being gathered again. Now our church is not the ultimate fulfillment of these verses. Christ and the church are the fulfillment of these verses. But we can hear echoes. Echoes of these verses. Echoes of the glorious gospel realities promised in these verses in what God has done in Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario in the year 2020. And that is what I want to spend the remainder of our time thinking about as I highlight three. Three of the ways that I have seen these verses fulfilled in God's work among us this past year. First, God is making a diverse people God is making a diverse people. This is one of the promises that God has made in these verses. It's not just those who are in palaces who shall find a home, but those who dwell in tents because God's everlasting love and his faithful promises are set on all who belong to him, no matter who they are, what they do, or what they possess. And hasn't the Lord done that among us? I love how I can say to people who ask me what my church is like, I I don't have to say, well, we're a church of professionals, we're a church of millennials, or we're a church of farmers, or we're a church of people in the trades. No, we are a church of lawyers and farmers. We're a church of engineers and bakers, IT professionals and flower shop owners. We are a church of seniors and Babies, married couples and singles, students and stay-at-home moms. We are a church of builders and business owners, carpenters and retail workers, accountants and musicians, teachers and nurses. God, God has brought us all together from all these diverse backgrounds and seasons of life and, and reputations in the community all together into this one place to be one spiritual community. One church with one witness to a watching world. We are diverse in what we do and we are diverse in who we are. We are diverse in who we are. The God of all the clans of Israel is the God of all the nations. 
And he has called people from every nation to join this new covenant, new testament community called the church. That he would be our God and we would be his people. And when we gather together, and I I long for the day when we are able to gather again physically and look out at one another and look at each other's faces and see that this is a diverse people, people with light skin and dark skin, people with big eyes and people with narrow eyes like mine, people who speak with a Canadian accent. By the way, if you speak like me, You're not just speaking normal English. You are speaking with a Canadian accent. And people who speak with different accents. People who have grown up here in Canada and people who have just recently arrived. My friends, that is the power of the gospel. It has power to establish a a new covenant community of people from every people, language, and tribe. And as we move forward, it is our prayer that the diversity of our church reflected in our leadership, reflected on our worship team, reflected in our ministries, it would only continue to expand. That different people from different places, different cultures, different languages would all be able to find a home at Sovereign Grace. That is the, one of the best ways we can put the gospel on display. That the things that typically divide people, culture, language, ethnicity, would all give way, would all fall away to the uniting power of the gospel. Second, God is making a joyful people. Jeremiah wrote that out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving in the voices of those who celebrate. We are to be a diverse people united by a common joy in our one savior expressed through song, through song, that the Christian faith is unique in many ways, but one of the ways it is unique is that the Christian faith is a singing faith. It is a singing faith. Our homes and our churches, our cars, our our times when we are walking outside, our, our lives are meant to be filled with song as we celebrate all that God has done in us and through us. And that is certainly true of this building. This, this building is meant to resound with God's praises and with a shout of joy that comes from salvation that is found in Christ alone. This sanctuary is meant to be filled with beautiful music that declares the saving work of Christ, the redemption that we have by his blood and the hope of eternal life. We are meant to sing, to sing in worship to God the Father, to God the Son, and to God the Holy Spirit. And this joy is meant to produce thanksgiving. Out of them shall come songs, not just of praise, not just of honor, not just of jubilation, but of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. The the thankful songs that we sing are meant to come from hearts full of thanksgiving. We're to be a thankful people And as simple as that sounds, that is a radical thing to experience in our current world. We live in an angry culture. We live in a discontent culture. We live in a complaining culture. And as a church, we have the opportunity to show the world a 
thankful culture, a thankful people. Because if anyone should be thankful, it is us. We who deserve God's wrath have instead received his mercy. We who were far from God have been brought near by the blood of his son. We who were without hope and without God in the world can look forward to a glorious future that has been secured for us by Christ. And by God's grace, this has been our experience. This has been my experience since we have moved into this building. I, I cannot count the number of times when, when people who used to attend the, this building for worship or people who are new to the community or people who have no connection to this uh, building at all, they have come up to me and expressed their gratitude and joy for the work that the Lord has done in bringing our church to this building. You have been a joyful people and a grateful people. In my, my exhortation to you, I, I, I urge you to, to not forget that, to not neglect to cultivate this. Joy and gratitude, because if we don't guard our hearts, if we don't discipline ourselves to intentionally pursue the joy of our salvation and the gratitude for what he has done, we will lose it. We who live in the world will become of the world. We must fight for joy and cultivate gratitude, not only in our hearts, but in our words. It is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks to express joy and gratitude to those around you. That out of this place would come songs of thanksgiving. Lastly, God is making us a fruitful people. It is the Lord's will for his people to reap a spiritual harvest. As he says in verse 19, I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Now this doesn't mean that the bigger the church, the bigger the blessings. There are many big churches that aren't faithful, that do not have the blessing of God even though their size seems to indicate otherwise. There are unfaithful big churches just like there are unfaithful small churches. But the reality remains, and verse 19 reminds us that churches are to grow as the gospel goes out to our children, to our friends, to our neighbors, and to our coworkers. For those who have been part of our church for a number of years, you know that we have always been a small church. You know, our average Sunday attendance was about 80 people, including children. And we were content with that. That was one of the joys of our church, that we, we weren't filled with, with an ambition to become something that, that we weren't. We, we saw instead that we, we value deep relationships. We, we value spiritual maturity. We, we, we value a devotion to prayer. And we thought as long as we have those things, we don't need to be big. We just want to be effective. We want to be faithful. But since moving into this building last year, our numbers have tripled. They've tripled. That is a remarkable statistic in any time let alone a pandemic when the church buildings have been closed for such a long period of time. There really is no earthly explanation for it. We didn't do any promotion. We didn't come up with a five-year strategy to inflate and increase our numbers. We just came and functioned as the same church we've always been. 
and the Lord has multiplied us. It is the Lord's work. He has multiplied us. He has honored us by making us fruitful. This is the Lord's work, and I, I stand here just as amazed as many of you. And now, now, now we want to train up leaders. We want to raise up faithful shepherds so that the Lord would keep multiplying. Lord willing, some of those people we train up will become pastors. Uh, others will be deployed in different ways, discipling men or women discipling women or, or so, some of them will stay here and serve amongst us. Some will, will go and plant a church. Others will go overseas. Whatever it is that the Lord brings to us, our desire and prayer is to multiply and increase so that God would receive the glory and the worship that he deserves. God would receive the songs of thanksgiving both now and forevermore. In all of this, I want to close with this. All of this was made possible because of our sovereign God, but also because of the faith and the faithfulness of the small group of men on the council of Springdale Christian Reformed Church, their wives who supported them, and the few members who remained as the church came to an end. On behalf of our leadership, on behalf of our church, we want to thank you for giving us this building. We want to commend you for your faith and for your faithfulness. And we want to acknowledge that all that we have seen the Lord do was accomplished through your faithfulness. And so may the Lord take the seeds that you have sown in us and multiply them 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, so that a faithful gospel witness would remain in this place, in this building, for generations to come. Let's pray together. Father, you are faithful. You are good. You have done far more than we could ever ask or think. We stand amazed at this past year, all these unexpected blessings. And we acknowledge that this is not our doing. This is not because we strategized correctly. This was an act of your sovereign providence. And so we humble ourselves, all of us, as sinners. All who would not dare to approach your presence but for the blood of Christ. And we say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We, we pray that as people attend our services, as they join our church, Sovereign Grace Church would become small and Christ would be exalted. That this would not be about us, but about the, the small piece of your kingdom work that you are accomplishing through us. We, we pray for multiplication, not, not meaning that we will necessarily fill this sanctuary or build additions or just congregate and aggregate here in this place, but that we would multiply even in unseen ways, that the gospel would go forth in our community and around the world. 
through the work that you are doing through us. We thank you, Father, for this season of blessing. And we pray that you would help us to remember, to remember what you have done, that we would have faith for what you will do in the future, what you will do among us in the present. We commit the next year of ministry to you. We present ourselves to you as slaves of righteousness, that we would be instruments of righteousness for your name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.